really been edified by Genesis. I, I really hope you have as well. This passage is loaded and uh, loaded with so, so much we could look at, so many different places in Scripture that we could turn. Uh, and I just pray that God will, will help us get as much as we can from it this time around. We're in Genesis 49 and we're reading just 1 to 12, verses 1 to 12. Then Jacob called his son and said, sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness, willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares, arouse, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of, of the peoples, binding his fowl to the vine, and his donkey's colt to choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Let's pray. Holy Father, we read of a dying man as he reflects upon his life and looks to the future for his sons. Would we feel the weight that our life will expire one day? Would we feel the reality that our time spent in your story is limited, as was Jacob's and every patriarch that followed him? So our time will come to an end and your story will continue. May we be humbled by this. May it charge us to think forward to the generations to come when we go. 
as we ponder the future of Jacob's sons, as we see some yet still not fulfilled, yet most already fulfilled. Lord, would we have a great anticipation for the King of Kings and His kingdom that is coming in all its glory as it is built stone by stone by His people who are His people. Lord, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would stir us to obedience to Your Word, encourage us to endure with all patience and all teaching. And may we see Your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. All glory be to You. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to turn our attentions to Deuteronomy 5, 8 to 10. It's uh, talking about the commandments of God. And he says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth below or in the water under, under the earth. You shall not worship them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God inflicting the punishment on the fathers, on the children, even on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing favor to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. How do we understand this passage today? Is this passage only for Israel? Is punishment only or consequences only reserved for the third, uh, third and the fourth generation of Israel? And is blessing only reserved for the thousandth generation only for Israel? Or should we see this in a more serious light in our day? Because what God is talking about is something incredibly serious. He's talking about idolatry. The worship of anything or anyone other than God who created you. What you worship will change the way you think and act. Before you knew God, you acted in a service to an idol. Control, self-worth, comfort, pleasure, status, success, or many other idols that you may have served. We worship whatever we serve most. Which in turn is then passed on to our children and our children's children. And history will show us that we pass on our idols to the next generation. Till God, who so graciously stops the spiral of idolatry and turns a person back to himself, and then the blessing is a thousand times better than the curse. What we see here in Deuteronomy 5 is that, there is, that, 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 that our actions matter. That our idolatries, our worships matter because they will be passed on to our children and our children's children. Yes, God is so gracious and great that He will turn the curse into a blessing. But we must be careful that we don't pass on idols to the next generation, but a faithful worship and a faithful obedience to our God. But this passage tells us, and a few others that we'll look at in a moment, 
tells us that we are not just passive observers waiting for a spiritual work to be done in our life. That our obedience matters. Our work and our choices matter. James tells us that faith without works is dead. Faith that doesn't change us is no faith at all. Faith that doesn't cause us to put to death the idols in our life and ongoing idols in our life and continue to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ is no faith at all. We must change. We must change. Our faith is clearly not a passive faith, but a working faith. Psalm 128 says this, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. Verse 2, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be, shall be well with you. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. If the fruit of the labor of your hands is idolatry, that is what you will produce. You will start to serve idols over and over again and pass those idols on to the next generation. Our obedience matters. Our obedience shows us how our life has changed, shows us our faith. We must put to death the idols in our life in order that we don't pass on idols to our children and children's children. We see Jacob, a dying patriarch in this passage, the father of 12 sons who will give a blessing for each of them. And he actually says, I'm going to tell you what will happen in the days to come. His blessing is prophetic. It is going to happen. And he assembles all his sons and he says, Listen to me, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And we see idols passed on. And we see a gracious God who stops the spread of idolatry and calls his people not to passive waiting but to obedience in Him. Let's pick up in verse, two, verse 1 and 2. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what will happen in your days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Jacob brings his sons together and blesses them and tells them what's going to take place in their next generation and the next generation and some a thousand generations on, right up until Christ. Like I said, this passage is glorious. This passage has so much metaphors, so many uh, passages we could turn to to understand. But what we first must understand is Old Testament prophecy and how we understand them in light of the New Testament. Two passages, Matthew 5, 17 to 18, and Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, help us really understand how prophecy has been fulfilled in the New Testament. In Matthew, it says, Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. And Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. 
These two passages remind us that everything that was written in the Old Testament is binding. Everything that was written in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. It is all pointing to His glorious kingship and His glorious kingdom, which we'll see as we unpack the rest of the passage. It's also a reminder that Christ is the final word. He is the prophet, the last prophet, because He is the Word of God. We see that in John 1.1. The Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, or one fourteen. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the final word of the prophets. He fulfills all the Old Testament. And he fulfills this passage that we see here. So going from the eldest son to the youngest, he starts with Reuben in verse three. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Reuben is the firstborn, yet his life has not been one to emulate. His lust for power and control over his father has led him to sleep with one of his wives, one of his father's wives. We see much of the prodigal son, the younger son in Reuben. He has gone up to his father and said, I want my inheritance. But instead of going up to his father and declaring, I want my inheritance, he sneakily has gone around his father's back in secret and said, if I take one of his wives, I will take control. And we saw this story and we can go back to the story earlier in Genesis when Reuben slept with Bilhah, one of Jacob's wives. What we need to remember is that God has in many ways redeemed Jacob's sinful polygamous marriage. We know that it is not approved of in the scriptures for Jacob to have the four wives that he has. And much turmoil and suffering and affliction came from it. But through God's graciousness, he has brought about a nation out of this polygamous relationship. God intervenes into our sinful idolatries and causes a new life to unravel. Yet sometimes, and very often, consequences follow us into the next generation, as will be the case for Reuben. He will not have the firstborn title. He will not be preeminent. He was the son of his father's strength. Jacob was a young man when he had Reuben, and an old man when he had Benjamin. He was full of power and full of energy, Yet Reuben will not emulate this in his generations to come. No judge, no prophet, no prince is found in the tribe of Reuben, nor any person of renown except for sin. Dathan and Ibrahim, whatever his name was, were, who, were, who were rebellious against Moses. The tribe itself decided not even to cross the Jordan, but to settle on the outside of the Jordan River. Reuben, all in all, became an outsider nation. It was not preeminent in power nor dignity. But this passage tells us that he was unstable as water, or he will be unstable as water. We see this in Reuben, even in his life. Reuben is the one who sleeps with his father's wife and then not too long later in Genesis 42:22, he's the one who wants to try and save Joseph. But his life has said, why would we listen to you? 
You are no longer worthy of listening to. Your life has revealed that you are not a man to follow. And his brothers continue to put Joseph in the well and to sell him to the Ishmaelites who end up taking him to Egypt. Nonetheless, Reuben did try, but Reuben's life did not reflect his beliefs. He was unstable. He would swing from one side to the other, from one extreme to the, to the other. Calvin said, Doctrine is not an affair of the tongue, but of our life. And Reuben was a man who may have had doctrine on his tongue, but he was unstable in the way he lived it out. What you believe about God will be evident in the way you live your life. A man whose life is unstable is a man whose doctrine you can't trust. A person whose life is unstable is a person whose doctrine you can't trust. Our doctrine reflects the way we live out our life. Matthew Henry said his virtue, speaking about Reuben, was unstable. He had not the government of himself. He had not governed himself well and his own appetites. Sometimes he would be very regular and order, orderly, but other times he would deviate into wild, wild courses. Note, instability is the ruin of man's ex- excellencies. In Christ, we have been called to so much more in the church. Jesus calls us to observe all that he has commanded us, uh, all that he has commanded, and to not passively sit idle, but to live in constant obedience to him. In in Ephesians 4, it actually says that he has given us the prophets of Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament, and the authorities of the church today, the shepherds and teachers, in order to maintain a faith of stability. It, It picks up here in verse 13 of Ephesians 4. Until we all attain to unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wave and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Jesus has established that all people in the church would grow up to be mature, stable, steadfast, unmoving, not tossed to and fro by the wave of teachings in our time, by the craftiness of the world. Unlike Reuben, who was unstable as water. We must ask, are we just passive, passive observers on our faith, waiting for good feelings or supernatural work of God, rather than the steadfast study and the steadfast obedience upon, obedience upon His Word, which will build us to be stable people and a stable church? Reuben will pass his unstableness onto his descendants and onto his tribe and eventually the Reubenites will disappear into the cloud of the northern kingdom of Israel. They'll become the Samaritans and they will not be recognized among the Jews. Simeon in verse 5 and Levi are brothers. Weapons of war are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed a man, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. 
Well, the firstborn has not been rejected, but certainly stepped down from his position as the firstborn son in whom the blessing would go forth in. Simeon and Levi are next in line, but their lust, not for so much power, but for revenge, is what Jacob does not want to be associated with. Do we remember the story? Simeon and Levi went up to the Shechemites who defiled their sister Dinah, and they made a deal. Circumcise yourselves and we will give you our, 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 our daughters for wives and you can give your daughters for, for our wives. While they were still sore from the circumcision, Simeon and Levi went up with the sword and massacred the Shechemites. God is clear in his word. I alone will take vengeance. And then we go, well, what about Joshua and David? They were under the command of God to punish the enemies of God. They had a very specific role in a specific time to put God's judgment in the hands of men. That is not the norm and God will take vengeance one day fully and finally on all the wicked. We see it promised in the Psalms and we see it promised throughout the prophets. These brothers had an unruled anger. Much like Reuben, they were ungoverned men, unruled men. And because of their anger, they brought shame on the rest of Israel. Jacob says, O my glory, be not joined to their company. In other words, let not my heritage be of ungoverned violence. Let, not be what, let this not run throughout my generation that we are ungoverned, unruled, just moved by every feeling and emotion that we have. We're suddenly happy and the moment we turn angry, we're ready to fight. Let this not be my heritage, but let me have a heritage of a ruled man. They were governed by their passions, by their emotions and their feelings when they should have counseled their emotions and their feelings with the promises of God or the counsel of their father at the time. This is a helpful place to remember that Jesus has set us free from our passions and desires. We are not governed by them anymore. We can turn to him. We can turn to him and trust that he's, he's dealt with our sin and changed our heart, and renewed our mind. And it's through the ongoing study of the Word that we are being renewed day by day. We do not sit when we sin and say, oh, that's just what I am, I'm a sinner. I swore again, I hated again, I lied again. Oh, I'm just a sinner. No, we beat the body as Paul calls us to beat the body. We apply the Scriptures and the Gospel to our mind. And we remind ourselves that sin has been cast away. We are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. What happens to Levi and Simeon? Well, the Levites, they don't even get a plot of land. They're scattered throughout the whole of Israel. Yet God redeems them. They become a priestly nation. Through God's sovereign grace, he chooses the Levites, this unruly, ungoverned, angry uh, generation to be brought about as his mediators between Israel and himself. Through God's sovereign grace, he intervenes into the curse of a generation after generation of sin and idolatry, and he redeems it. Simeon, on the other hand, continues. In Numbers 25, 14, another act of violence, another act of, of unruled, ungoverned, Anger is produced, and this 
really seals the generation of the Simeonites. They are placed in the southern kingdom. We see Judah is the southern kingdom and the Simeonites are smack bang in the middle like Canberra is to New South Wales. And then they just disappear. The Simeonites just disappear. They don't really ever get mentioned again. They just get absorbed into the other tribes. Generation came and generation went and the disobedience to God continued until the Simeonites were no more. Yet God, through His sovereign grace, redeemed the Levites and made them a priestly nation. God's sovereign choice is what we see. Two sons, rather, sorry, three sons, and we have seen none of them be praised. None of them have had a blessing of a thousand generations until Judah, the fourth son. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers, will praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. After three tragic stories of sin spiraling, we land at this place with a hopeful image. A hopeful image that if we really spent time to unpack would, would, would fill us with such joy as we unpack these few verses. Right from the beginning, Judah's name is, is, is positive. It's about praise. His name means praise. And it says that his brothers will praise him. They will praise him as a nation. It also says that his hand will be against the neck of his enemies. We see this fulfilled in the warrior, King David. From his very first fight with Goliath, he was a man of victory. And in Psalm 18, verse 40, he says of himself to God, You made my enemies turn their back to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. In David's day, we saw a king that should be feared. Like a lion in his pride. The name, the lion of Judah, comes from this passage and continues on throughout the scriptures. Your father's son shall be, verse, the end of verse 8, going into verse 9, your father's son shall bow down to you, bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? David is the first image of the lion, the king of Judah, the, the lion of Judah, the king of Judah. David dies, but, and this image continues on in Ezekiel 19 and Micah 5 7. And the brothers, unlike the brothers who before their prophecies expire at a time, this prophecy continues on to a thousand generations thousand generations we see Judah's prophecy go on verse 10 the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet in verse 10 this is confirmed that his scepter shall never depart from Judah but after the exile of Babylon there was no more king in Judah so more generations will come and more generations will pass until finally the king, the Lion of Judah, not David who foreshadowed, but Jesus is here in human flesh. In Luke 10, uh, Luke 2, 10 to 4, 14, we see 
the great declaration of the angels to the shepherds. And the angel said, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and singing, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. The blessing of Judah is to a thousand generations. This son of Judah did come. This son of Judah did come and his enemies are at, he has his enemies at his throat. Satan he bruised and bound. Sin he broke the chains of. And he is coming to defeat his last enemy, death. The verse goes on in Genesis and it says, until his tribute comes to him. Tribute is also translated Shiloh, which means rest, peace, tranquility, or he's whose it is will be. Everything is Christ's. And everything was made through him, and now everything will be put under his feet. These passages here, this prophecy of Jacob as he speaks forth to Judah, he's picturing Psalm 110 and 1 Corinthians 15. Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Yahweh said to David's Lord, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Apostle Paul, writing on Psalm 110 in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 24 and 20 to 26, says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Where is Judah's son, the Lion of Judah, the King of Kings? On his throne waiting for every rule and authority to be put under his feet. And until that day, when every rule and authority has been put under his feet, then he will destroy death, the last enemy, the final enemy. Jacob, in his dying breath, looks upon Judah and sees the gospel. Looks upon Judah and sees the kingdom of God. He sees the King of Kings, the Lion of Judah, the one who will reign forever when all rule and authority will be under his feet and Christ alone is ruling. The end is when God is God over all, when God is the only governor, the only king, the only ruler in Jesus Christ, his son. When his kingdom is complete, when the parables of Christ are fulfilled, the tiny mustard seed is grown into a giant plant or the rock that was cut from heaven and smashes all earthly kingdoms in the prophecy of Daniel grows into a mountain or in Ezekiel 47, when the puddle turns into a stream, into a river that floods the ocean and makes the salt water fresh. This is Christ's rule. And he rules until this is complete. The scepter will not pass from Christ's hand. 
He is sitting at the right hand of God today, waiting for His enemies to be put under His feet. What a hope. Christ will never vacate His throne. Christ will be successful at His mission. In verse 14, it continues and it says, And to Him shall be the obedience of the peoples. To to the Son of Judah, to the one who rules, to the one who will not let go of His scepter, will be the obedience of the peoples. The people will live in obedience to Him. They will put themselves in submission to Christ. The Gospel will prevail. The Great Commission is successful. We looked at this last week, but we cannot skip over the Great Commission when we read a passage that tells us prophetically that they will be, an obedient, to, they will be obedient to Him. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen to 20 And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to Me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. It says to go and make disciples. Why? Because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. So when we go to make disciples, we are going in the authority of Christ. We are going with true authority, with lasting authority, with the scepter that will never leave Judah's tribe, with the one who will have all his enemies under his feet. That is the name in which we go to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God to the nations. And then we see, it says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So we don't stop at just introducing them to Jesus. We teach them the whole of scripture. How long is that going to take? generations at least your whole life your whole life at least long enough for a puddle to become a stream that fills the ocean and makes it fresh water as ezekiel 47 points out or a mustard seed to grow into a mighty tree for the animals to live in and under genesis 49 14, uh, what passage, verse was it? 10, thanks. Reminds us, tells us that to him, to Judah's offspring, the one whose scepter will not pass from his hand, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. To a thousand generations. To a thousand generations of Judah. A thousand generations will pass, but one day the obedience of the people will be to Christ. The Great Commission is successful. Until tribute comes, and to Him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is the mission of God. To colonize the world with obedient people. We pray, Jesus taught us to pray the very words, may your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And this passage here tells us it will be successful. The people will be obedient to Christ. Philippians 3.20 tells us that we are citizens of the kingdom of God and Paul deliberately uses it to the Philippians. Why? Because the Philippians are a Roman colony and they were sent to colonize Philippi for Rome. 
They came from Rome with Roman culture, Roman art, Roman rule, and they were there to make Rome in Philippi. And then Paul says, you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, therefore colonize Philippi for the kingdom of heaven. Bring the rule, the reign, the culture, the music of the kingdom of heaven to Philippi and colonize it for the glory of Christ. And let me tell you, you'll be successful. Genesis 49.10 tells us that the son of Judah, the lion of Judah, the king of kings, whose scepter will never pass from his hand, will be successful. Amen. And if we need two more verses, we get two more verses in 11 and 12 that remind us of how successful this will be. This beautiful poetic image binding his fowl to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. What is this all about? A land of plenty, but not just plenty of sustaining food, but a land of plentiful, luxurious, pleasant food. What was the most rare and and sought after drink? Wine. It was good for the body. It was good for healing. It was used for medicine. It was this royal banquet. It uh, It had classes of good wine and bad wine. And here what we see is wine will be so plentiful, your donkey will drink from it. Your common donkey is going to drink from the pleasures that kings enjoy. You will wash your garments in the wine. As you used to wash in water, now you will wash in wine because it will be as common as water. The once precious drink is now as common as water. This king's rule is going to bring about peace for the nations and a land of pleasures forevermore. As Psalm 16 says, at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Wine will be as common as water. This new heaven, this new earth, this king's reign is going to bring about not just sustaining food, but pleasantries, comfort. You will never be dissatisfied in this place. The final verse of blessing to Judah is that this line of Judah will be dazzling, glorious. He'll be one to fear. He'll strike fear when you come across him. Verse 12, his eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. His eyes will be so piercing, they will see right through you. They'll be so precious and intoxicating that you'll be drawn to him. His teeth will be white, symbolizing purity, symbolizing purity of mouth, purity of thought, purity of his whole life. Yet when Jesus came, he walked the earth and had nothing to attract us to him, as, Ezekiel, uh, as Isaiah tells us. He was veiled, but when he unveiled his glory to the three disciples on the mountain, he was unapproachable, and he stood in unapproachable light. He veiled himself and walked among us as men, and he made himself known to his followers as he went. Turn with me to John 2 as I close. John 2, 1-11 On the third day, 
there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stones jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, but when people have drunk freely, then they pour, then, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did in Canaan and Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Why did his disciples believe in him? Because he just fulfilled Genesis 49, verse 11 and 12. Jesus made water into wine. He made wine as common as water. And not just ordinary wine, but the best of all wines. This Jesus Christ, who veiled his glory, just declared his glory and said, I am the King of Kings. I am the Lion of Judah. My scepter will never part from me. My enemies will be put under my feet. And we will one day bathe our clothes in wine, in pleasures forevermore. The one thing to note here is that the water was used for purification. Jesus takes this purification and he turns it to wine later to symbol his blood. And he, he reminds us so clearly in the depths of this parable and right back in Genesis 49 that we are washed in his blood. Our lives are washed in his blood. He steps into generations, transforms that generation, and then causes that generation to be passed on with worship of him to a thousand generations. Would we care more about our lives than just the immediate now? But would we care about the lives to come and the generations that will pass us when we go? Jacob certainly did. Abraham and Isaac certainly did. And every one of the patriarchs that follow certainly cared about their generations after them. We should do the same. His kingdom will not pass away. He will rule until his enemies are under his feet. His last enemy that he puts under his feet is death. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, what a joy it is to read of a dying patriarch thousands of years before us, who played his part in your story and who dwells with you awaiting for your kingdom to be complete. May we be faithful in our time. May we hold on to the washing of our lives in your blood. 
May we meditate on the kingdom of heaven often and the luxurious banquet, the pleasant pleasures that will be forevermore. That there will be never a time that we'll be bored or unsatisfied. May we care about the coming generations. May we listen to the older generations. May we be humble and teachable. May we be aware of our idolatries, that we would not pass them on to the next generation. But Lord, we also pause and thank you that despite sin and the curse of sin spiraling into generation after generation, you, by your sovereign grace, choose to stop it. And you stop it by new life. New life in your blood. New life in Christ. We thank you that you are ruling and reigning today. We pray that we would go in your authority to the nations and teach them to observe all that you have commanded. Would that be our life's work? And it is a worthy life's work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.